0: associated with Christianity, is also something that is used in other contexts as well. The word gospel literally means a a momentous announcement. It was an announcement of an objective, history-changing event that when it happened, you would have to acknowledge it, and you would also have to respond to it, to change to it. So a great example of this outside of Christianity probably happened um, in AD 490 at the Battle of Marathon. Uh, what happened is there was, the Persians were invading Greece and the Athenian army went out to meet the Persian army in the plains of Marathon. And it was expected that the Persian army, much mightier, much bigger, more successful, would win that battle. So everyone back in Athens, the women and the children and the old people were trying to get out of Athens as quickly as they possibly could. And to everyone's surprise, the Athenian army won. They defeated the Persians. And immediately they realized they had to send a messenger to run back to the city and warn the people. Because the women and children were leaving. There would have been possibilities of people being trampled upon and looting and all those kinds of things that take place in crisis and in terror. And so they send a single runner a single runner who had fought in the battle, but he had now had to run 42.2 kilometers. That's where we get the marathon distance from. He would run from marathon all the way to Athens. And he it's history tells us he runs into the city and he proclaims, Rejoice, we have triumphed. Rejoice, we have triumphed. And he falls over dead, exhausted, dies. But he comes with this message and a, a momentous announcement an announcement that had to, you had to respond to an announcement that changed history and friends i want to tell you that god's gospel is not just a good idea god's gospel is not just good advice that you should live by but rather it is good news it's a momentous announcement of god's victory over sin and death in jesus christ it's this wonderful news of Jesus coming to save us, that the God himself came in the person of Jesus, became our king, lived amongst us, died for our sin, rose again from the grave, defeating sin and death, and he will one day return again as king, but also as judge. This gospel is, can be maybe defined as in this four-letter word, that simple four-letter word, swap. That God so passionately loved us that He came in Jesus and took our place upon the cross. That He was treated the way we should be treated and judged for our sins so that we might be treated and accepted in heaven as a perfect child of God like we sung this morning. That is the glorious nature of the gospel that we are talking about today. But when we talk about the gospel, there is an element of it that mo- very popular and uh, gospel presentations and courses don't like to emphasize. And that is part of what we spoke about right at the end, that Jesus will one day return and judge. There's this message of judgment. That is a part of our gospel. The gospel is more than just Jesus dying on the cross for us. It includes, his, uh, it includes his incarnation, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. It includes, encapsulates all of who Jesus is. And there's this necessity that when we proclaim the gospel, that we do so with its entirety. And that, unfortunately for us, at times, we need to include that of him returning as judge. We see this in a passage in, in Romans 2, verse 16. Here, we see the Paul writing to the Romans says this, This will take place on the day when God judges uh, people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so, for Paul, when he spoke about his gospel, the entirety of his gospel It was also the fact that Jesus would return and he would judge. And Jesus consistently taught this as well. Jesus consistently taught that when he would re- that we needed to repent from our sins, or we would perish, or we would be in need of salvation from God's judgment, and that would either launch us, if we would respond correctly, into an extravagant blessing of being with God for all eternity in the new heavens or earth, or that for those who did not repent would lead to torment and eternal hell. And so, this was a a message that. Is essential to the gospel in which we proclaim, because friends, if we don't mention that Jesus will come back and we uh, and judge, and we only ever speak about how Christianity affects this life, people who aren't Christian won't really get why they need to repent. What's the point? Because actually their lives are pretty sweet at the moment. So why should they have to change around? And what it will also do, it will lead us as Christians who proclaim this message, this wonderful gospel that we have, is it will lead us to exaggerate its blessings, try and manipulate it in such a way that people would have to choose it. Or we would ignore or just lie about the cost of following Christ because there certainly is a cost as a Christian that comes that way. And so there is this need for us to, uh, if we want people to be saved, there's this need for us to speak about judgment and eternity. There's this need for us to be able to speak about Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying we must be one of those annoying turn or burn kind of preachers that stand on their soapbox with placards and they just shout at you all the time, never encapsulating the gospel. Because remember, while I'm saying that judgment is a part of the gospel, it's not the entirety of the gospel. And so we must speak about all of it, but we must also include that Christ will come as judge. And And so while I don't want us to be those uh, fire and brimstone, that's all we ever speak about, nothing else in in people's faces, what strikes me about our passage this morning is that the conversion of Nineveh comes from the faithful preaching of Jonah through judgments. And so there's this need for us to include this in our message. So what we're going to do, it's a bit tricky this morning, we're going to be jumping all over the place, but what we're going to be doing is we're going to go verse by verse for the the first through the first uh, five verses of our text, and then we will move on to another section that we see. So let's look at the first five five verses. The first verse says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now that is just, I I just want you to let that grace just run over you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Our God is the God of second chances. He's a God of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. And now that is true of every aspect of our lives as Christians. When we mess up and we do something wrong, I want you to know that God gives you a chance, a second chance, a third chance. He's a God of grace, and He's a God of mercy. Over and over again, He does it. But also, He particularly does it when it comes to sharing our faith with those that we, that we love and our friends, right? Right? Maybe it's just me in the room this morning, but there have been times when the Spirit has prompted me to share my faith with a loved one or with a friend or with a colleague, or not so much colleague because I work in the church, uh, but a, a, a partner of a gym or something like that, and, and then feeling the anxiety of doing it and just saying, Lord, this isn't the right time choosing my way rather than and being obedient to the prompting of the Spirit. Maybe you can acknowledge that it is you this morning. You've done something along those lines. Well, I want to say God is a God of second chances. He hasn't written you off because you didn't get that right or you weren't obedient to that chance. He gives us chance again to be obedient to him. Do you notice that he doesn't nag Jonah? He just says, Jonah, go tell the message that I've told you. He doesn't come with more instructions. And you better watch out, Jonah. If you don't do it this time, you thought the fish was bad. Man, I've got a shark lined up for you next time. You know, like, he, he doesn't come with more threats. He doesn't come with more rules. He just, he just comes graciously to Jonah and says, go again. Friends, maybe some of you need to hear that again. Just go again. Go again. God is a God of second chances. Let's look at verse 2. It says this. It says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. What I love about this is that, Jonah, it, that God just comes along to Jonah and says, Jonah, go and give the message that I have given you. And he, there is a bit of a warning here to Jonah, actually. Jonah, don't go and soften the message. Jonah, don't go and make the message so that it might tickle people's ears. Jonah, don't go and twist the message so it might not get you into trouble. Jonah, go and preach the message I give to you. And friends, that is the, the instruction for us that we have been given the Word of God and it is essential that we proclaim its entirety, that we don't just proclaim bits and parts that we like, that we don't just only give to people what they would like to hear, but we make sure that we give to them the entire gospel, the entire message of God's scripture that we don't twist it or remove pages out of scripture saying that's not applicable for us today and that that story makes no sense and so we don't trust it. We don't twist it to to set our agenda or to to be able to conform to the image of what culture is pushing. We hold to it firmly. But as I say that, I also want to say that that means when people, guests, walk through the door, what it means is we're not going to stand there. What it does not mean is we're not going to stand there with a list of all the controversial things that culture holds to and that opposes Scripture, and we're going to tell them it immediately. No, of course not. But what it is going to mean is that as we faithfully journey through Scripture, is that we will preach what Scripture tells in front of us. If there's a hard text, there's a hard text and we will preach it faithfully. But when we do so and when you have conversations with your friends, while we hold to it truth and we hold to it firmly, we do so with gentleness, kindness and love. We demonstrate Christ as we hold to these truths. And verse 3 says the following. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a great, a very great, a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And so, Jonah goes into the city, but it shows us here that God's heart, as we will see in chapter four, God's heart for Nineveh wasn't because of its political prowess or its commercial revenue that it was able to produce, but rather, Nineveh was important to God because it was full of people. Nineveh was important to God because it was full of people, and my friends, I want to say that about the East Coast this morning, that God finds the East Coast valuable because it's full of people that the reason why God has situated us here as a church is not because we have the best view in town. It's not because when you get bored of me, you can look out there. It's not because this is the best lifestyle that you can have in East London. But God has situated us here as a church, situated you here through His Divine sovereignty has moved some of you here from Johannesburg because you used to come here on holiday. Actually, that's half of your half of your testimonies. We used to come here on holiday and we decided to live here. My friends, God has placed you here and put a desire for you here because there are valuable people in the city that God wants to reach or valuable people in the East Coast that he wants you to reach. He loves the East Coast, not because of its beauty, but because of the people who are here. And so that is why we are sent as a church to this this community. The fourth verse says this, it says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is unlikely the whole entirety of Jonah's message. Um, And the reason why we can say that, because this is just one line, he probably said more than just one line. And, And also when you hear in scripture, when Jesus speaks about Jonah, he says, that the, the the sign of Jonah being in the fish was a sign to the Ninevites, and as much as it will be him going to the grave will be a sign to us, and so it's probably that Jonah spoke about him being in the fish, he the the mighty work of God had done, and that was part of the message that captured their hearts and captured their attention. He might have been able to point to all the burns all over his skin from being inside the fish's tummy, the acid that would have burned his skin. He might have been able to point to how he seemed to have gone through hell and back and looked at, look at me. God has sent me here. I didn't want to come. And that was part of the message that captulated their attention. But for us, we need to realize that this revival, this great revival was brought out because of Jonah's message on judgment. And, and Jonah would have had to be incredibly brave to do so. Incredibly brave. He had to walk into a city that was known for its violence, its torture tactics against foreigners and its enemies. And Jonah had to walk in and shout, you better repent because God's going to destroy you in 40 days. That was an incredible amount of bravery and obedience required by him. He, he probably thought being stuck in a fish was worse, and so that's why he was going to go do it regardless of what uh, might happen to him. But I say that because if we want to put ourselves in a similar context, it might be putting ourselves in the middle of Afghanistan in a huge market amongst Muslims on side of mosque and shouting, the God of Israel tells you to repent to Jesus, otherwise you'll be destroyed. That's the kind of bravery that Jonah had to have in order to do it. And, and but we who find ourselves in a Western culture, we don't have to worry about any of those kinds of threats. Though, I think the anxiety and the fear of being rejected and mocked and ridiculed or, or even having a question asked that we cannot answer is something that puts us off. And we think if we speak about Jesus coming to die for our sins so that he would save us from hell to bring us into eternity, then when we mention that if you don't, you're going to go to hell, that we might push people away rather than draw them to him. But what we see here is that God uses this message of judgment to persuade people that what they need is a Savior. If you don't talk about the danger they're in, how will they know the need of a Savior? Why would they need Him? And so there's this famous preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones He's he's now passed away and gone to be with the Lord. Probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century. If you can get any of his stuff, listen to any of his sermons, I really encourage you to do so. He once wrote this. It should be on the screen uh, behind me. It says this. He says, "I'm I'm not afraid of being charged, as I frequently am, with trying to frighten you, for I am definitely trying to do so. If the wondrous love of God in Christ Jesus and the hope of glory is not sufficient to attract you, then such is the value I attach to the worth of your soul. I will do my utmost to alarm you with the sight of the terrors of hell. Isn't that that's an incredible way of putting it? I think that's our heart this morning. Is that we try and persuade peoples with the wonders of Jesus. He's he's glorious. He's wonderful. He satisfies the soul. The the longing soul who desperately needs satisfaction. It can only be found in Jesus. This is what we proclaim. This is what we as Christians have experienced by by knowing Christ. But when that doesn't work to the lost soul, maybe we should go, well, do you know where you go in? And if you don't, maybe that will wake them up because we value their soul so much we bring in the message of judgment. And so here... In verse 5 of chapter 3 of Jonah, what we see is that the people of Nineveh believed God. They recognized that this warning and proclamation of Jonah, excuse me, wasn't his own words, but were the words from God, and so they turn into repentance. They turn and repent to God as a result. And, and friends, if we don't explain God's judgments, people will not really grasp the fullness of God's love. Now, let me explain that maybe with an illustration. Say this morning you, you walk outside a spa, you head to spa after church and you, you walk outside, you see Jesus across the road and he shouts I love you and he walks into the road and he gets hit by a bus. Now, now that was dramatic, but what was the point? He shouted I love you but it didn't prove anything. But say we, we, we walk out the spa we, we start crossing the road ourselves and Jesus shouts I love you as he bumps you out of the road and gets taken out by the truck. Suddenly his proclamation of his love makes more sense, because he has rescued you from what was coming your way, and suddenly the love makes more sense. In the same ways with people, we can tell them Jesus loves them, Jesus loves them, he's died for you on the cross, but if we don't tell them what he has died, why he has died, and what he has saved them from, the love seems very dramatic, but it doesn't seem very reasonable. So in order for the cross of Christ, to make sense in people's hearts, we have to tell them that judgment has come in their way and Christ has come and taken that judgment upon himself and that he has saved them because he loves them. And what that does is it magnifies the love that he has for them. So when we preach the entirety of the gospel, all of it in whole, what are we hoping will take place in people's hearts? What are we hoping will take place? Or how do I put it, how do, how do people become Christian? And, and that brings me to uh, my my next point, and that is repentant faith. Repentant faith. That is the simple answer of turning to Jesus by the gospel through repentant faith. We see this, Paul tells this to the, the leaders of Ephesus in Acts 20 verse 21. He says this, I have declared to both Jew and Greeks that they must turn to God in, in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, the, the word turning here encapsulates both the repentance and faith that we have been speaking about here. Repentance and faith are two aspects of the same coin of turning back to Jesus. So what is repentance? Well, repentance is changing your mind. That is what the word means. It's changing your mind. It's, it's far more than just a head knowledge of the gospel. It's far more than just a knowledge within our heads that we know the gospel, but rather it is something that goes much deeper within and it affects our will, the mind of the heart, uh, the, it affects the will of the mind. It changes that. It, f- it changes our deep affections. It changes the, the affections of the, the heart. That's what it, it means. And, and, it, and ultimately what it leads to is changed behavior costly, changed behavior. We see this as John. When John is calling for repentance in the wilderness, what he says in Matthew 3, verse 8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits. There is an action that is required. Not just words, not just feeling bad, but it's an action that is required. And so an example of this would be that of Judas Iscariot and that of Peter. Both men at, at Jesus' death, at the last moments, experienced a form of what it looked like, repentance. So Judas, he betrays Jesus. He realizes what he's done. He, he goes and he throws the coins back. There's, there's weeping. He cries. He realizes what he's done. And then what does he do? He goes and he hangs himself. But Peter denies Jesus three times. There's weeping. There is emotion. But what does he do? At the end, he turns back to Christ and he follows him. True repentance is not feeling bad of what you have done. True repentance is changing in action. Does that make sense? Because just you feel bad just means you feel bad that you've been caught, bad you've been exposed. But true repentance results in an action that we have changed. Now, hear me here. We are not saved by our changed behavior, but we are saved for changed behavior. We're not saved by our changed behavior. We are saved for our changed behavior. Now, that doesn't mean, and that doesn't mean, I'll I'll get to that a little later. We are saved for changed behavior. All right, so what does faith then mean? Faith then means the the following. Faith means to depend wholly on God, to trust Him, to depend upon Him. Uh, This is not a a confidence, a wishy-washy confidence that we get that Western culture tries to paint us on is this. This idea that we uh, trust in, in in nothingness. It's like we're hoping for the best. That's not what faith is. Faith is a logical dependence upon something or someone. We depend on it. There is, and we see now our, our, our gospel that we have is true and real. There is evidence. There's more than enough evidence and proof in the Bible, including that of eyewitness accounts, predictions that have taken place that Scripture has promised, incredible signs that have been Show and there is logic behind what we hold to, and so causing and asking people to repent and have faith is not an emotional manipulation, but rather it's an appealing to them and asking them to choose what is shown to us in Scripture. And we see this with Paul in Acts 17, it talks about Paul here that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving, arguing persu- persuasively about the kingdom of God. He argued pers- pers- persuasively about the kingdom of God. And so that is what faith is. It's, it's believing in, the, in what Christ has for us. But what does repentant faith look like? Because it's all great said and done that we must repent and we must have faith in God. But what does repentant faith look like? Well, what we're going to do, again, is we're going to journey through the last bits of the Scripture, Let's look here in verses 3 and 4. It says, uh, verses 4 and 5, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, he had 40 days, and it will be overthrown. And the people believed God. People believed God. And so what happens here is that people hear the word of God, and they realize God is speaking to them, not just the prophets. And friends, this happens all around the world every day. As people open up the Scriptures with colleagues at, around the office at lunchtime, as people sit and talk about the Scriptures at a coffee table, or moms and dads, as before bedtime, start to read Scripture with their children, what happens is the Word of God, through the power of the Spirit, has an effect on people's hearts. And it starts to change their hearts. That what is happening here. And friends, we've got to realize that it's not your words or my words that change people's hearts. It's the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. And now this should bring us much comfort. As we look at the story of Jonah, this should bring us much relief, knowing that it's not your arguments that change people's hearts. It's not your persuasive speaking that gets your non-Christian friend to be able to come to know Jesus. No, it is the Word of God by the power of the Spirit that changes their hearts. And so that means that you can go to a friend and you can stumble and you can stutter and you can say the wrong thing the wrong way around and you can move away, but you can come away with a confidence knowing that it wasn't how you presented it that mattered, but rather by the power of the Spirit that their hearts could be changed. It gives us a confidence to be able to share God's word, knowing that it's never up to you to make the decision. It's up to God to do the work in the heart by the power of the Spirit through the word of God. Does that make sense? What a relief that is. That as you talk to someone and you go, oh, that didn't feel like it went well. It doesn't matter. God can, use it. God can use a donkey to speak. If God can use a reluctant prophet like Jonah, do you notice that the, the city is three days wide, but he only walks one day? He doesn't even want to go halfway. He kind of just trudges through this reluctance. And he, and he just says, Ah, oh, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. Not really expanding God's word and, and going into it in major depth. There's is really reluctance behind Jonah. We'll see his heart hasn't changed much in the next chapter, next week. And yet God is able to take such a word and change someone's heart. Not just someone's heart, but a whole entire city's heart. He can take your words and use it. Don't worry if you don't have all the theology lined up. Don't worry if you don't know all the scriptures off by heart. Don't worry if you don't have all the questions, because God can use your simple words. And God loves to, He absolutely loves to take what is weak and shame the wise with it. He's able to take your weakness and use it, because God gets all the glory, not you. So take courage by that. Let that be something that stirs you on to go forward. The next thing that we see here is that they humbled themselves. That's the next point, number two. They humbled themselves. Look at verse uh, 3 and verse 5. It says this, They called a fast and put on sackcloth, for the greatest of them to the least of them. If you had to wander through Nineveh that day, and you would have had to head off into the markets where there was normally the hussing, and the bussing, and the selling and the, and the bartering that was taking place. You would not have found anyone there. Because from the, the most important, the king, to the least important had gone and put on sackcloth and humbled themselves before God. And this is what a repentant faith looks like. It is a change of attitude of God. Please come and help us. That is what it looks like. Lord, I need you. It's not this... Super, uh, uh, superficial religious version of humility, of I'm going to turn over a new leaf, or I'm going to somehow ask God to, to uh, through my actions to earn his favor, but rather it is just an acknowledgement that, Lord, I regret my sins. I am guilty, and I deserve your punishment. It's a, it's a sign of humility before him. And then the next thing is what we see is they turn from their sin, Jonah 3 verse 8 says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so if you had to now wander through the city out of the market and you headed toward where the brothels were and the temples were, they were all boarded up. There was this this radical change that had taken place in these people. The people that used to skin people alive and cut off the ears and noses. Suddenly, they were repented of their sins. They were changing. There's this behavioral change within their hearts. They repented, not with emotion, but their own actions were different. They were turning from their sin. And lastly, we see here, they pleaded for mercy. Jonah 3 verse 9 says, who knows god may turn and relent and uh, may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish and they genuinely beg for mercy lord you alone can stop this lord there is nothing that we can do to stay your hand we have to plead to your mercy that you will give us what we do not deserve and so repentance and faith is pleading to god saying lord We deserve nothing else besides your punishments, but we plead to your mercy. And now for us as Christians, may I just warm our hearts here, for us as Christians, we have a certainty that God will be merciful to us. And the reason is, is because he has promised to forgive us. We see this in 1 John 1 verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a certainty as Christians as we inevitably mess up because we as Christians still have the flesh within us making mistakes, that we can run to Christ and ask him to forgive us and we can plead on his mercy. But for someone who does not know Christ, it's his first time of going, Lord, I deserve this punishment but I'm going to plead to Jesus my Savior and ask that you give him mercy. And when someone does that, when somebody believes that the word is from the Lord, that they have humbled themselves, that they've acknowledged their sins and turned from it and plead for mercy, then we have repentant faith and then we see people are saved. It's through that kind of a journey. And so friends, I want to close with this this morning. As we talk about receiving mercy, we can't help but remember as Christians that we ourselves were once in a position where we were enemies of God, shaking our fist at him. And that the wrath of God was rightfully going to be poured out upon us. But God in His mercy revealed to us through some people who shared the word of God that Jesus is our Savior. And that He opened our eyes to see this wonderful truth and that we came to know Him through that. That is a revelation that has happened to us. But as I was thinking about my own salvation this week, I realized that there were three men particularly in my life that really played an an integral role in my life. One was my grandfather. My father died when I was young, and I lived with my grandparents, and my grandfather daily shared with me the gospel as I would go through to his room and we'd do it quiet time. Huge role. But I always grew up thinking I was Christian until the age of 14, and I had a friend come along. His name was Mike Brown who noticed that there was something not quite right with my Christianity and started probing and asking questions and inviting me to things, much to my annoyance, but yet he did it. And around that time, God used a man called Denver Anderson, where he would start a a group called SunSurf. Um, there was it's a Christian surfing Christian organization in, around the country, and he would start one in Genubi, and he would put out flyers on the beach, and my grandfather would see it, and I heard that there was free surf trips around to different parts of the city, and I thought that it was a great idea. And so I pitched up at a Bible study, and I was there, and through his faithful ministry to six little rascals, my goodness, we were naughty, his faithfulness to six teenage brats, but it was through his ministry, through Mike Brown and through my grandfather, that God revealed himself to me sitting down doing homework one day. And, if, and I messaged them at least once a year going, Man, I just, I just love you. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. And friends, if you had to look on your own journey, you could go so-and-so. So-and-so. They were faithful. If they weren't bold enough to nag me about Christianity if they didn't open their mouths and invite me to church or invite me to an and to invite me to this or the other, if it wasn't for them, I don't know where I would be. And I've got to ask us this question. Are we a part of other people's journeys? Is there someone sitting back and going, so-and-so, you, they were part of my journey? Because you can be. And in actual fact, I've got to warn us here, often we look at Jonah and we go, Jonah, what a fool. What an idiot. Hey, eh? how did he not hear God's word and do it? How did he not run into the violent city in Nineveh and go tell them that they were going to destroy? Why did he lack so much faith? And yet our friends, I got to prompt us, I got to this morning, saying we have been given the same message to go. Let's not be like Jonah. Let's have faith and go and share this glorious gospel, this momentous announcement that we can shout from the top of the rooftops, Rejoice! For Christ has been triumphant. We've got this wonderful news. Go and share it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning as we stand here that you have been triumphant. That there was wrath rightfully going to be poured upon us, but you in your deep love came and took our place upon the cross. That the wrath of God was not poured out on us, But because of Christ, it was poured out on him. And we thank you, Lord, for the men and women who are faithful in going and sharing that message to us. We pray you would bless them today. But I ask, Lord, by the power of the Spirit, that you would stir within us a deep desire to go and share that this morning. Maybe even as I pray now, I want to... Who is the Lord laying on your hearts? Is it someone to speak to? Is it someone to... Invite to Alpha. To someone to share your testimony with. Who is the Lord laying on your heart at this moment? Say, yes, Lord. Don't be like Jonah and go and share it, knowing that he is with you. Lord, and we, we thank you this morning that you clearly are a God of mercy who wants to save. If you want to save a wicked nation like the Syrians, like the city of Nineveh, how much more would you want to save the East Coast? Use us, we pray. Humbly we come before you saying, Lord, we are weak. We we often fail. We often mess up. But would you use us by the power of your Spirit to make an impact for your glory and your glory alone in this area, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.